Welcome to The Art of Being a Mum, the podcast that's a platform for mothers who are artists and creatives to share the joys and issues they've encountered while continuing to make art. Regular themes we explore include the day-to-day juggle, how mothers' work is influenced by their children, mum guilt, how mums give themselves time to create within the role of mothering, and the value that mothers and others place on their artistic selves. My name's Alison Newman. I'm a singer, songwriter, and a mum of two boys from regional South Australia. You can find links to my guests and topics we discuss in the show notes, together with music played, how to get in touch, and a link to join our lively and supportive community on Instagram. The Art of Being a Mum acknowledges the Boendick people as the traditional owners of the land which this podcast is recorded on. Thanks so much for tuning in. It's a pleasure to have you back if you're a regular listener and if this is your first time, welcome. It is such a pleasure to have you here. Today I'm pleased to welcome Elise Adlam to the podcast. Elise is a philosopher and a feminist based in Europe and she's a mum of one. Elise is an Australian philosophy educator with a background in academic philosophy and early childhood education. After teaching philosophy at an academic level and to the public and working with kids, Elise became passionate about public philosophy. In particular, she's developing resources and courses on feminism, neoliberalism and general philosophy for parents. She believes that philosophical and intersectional feminism connects directly to our everyday lived experiences. Elise is passionate about sharing her ideas and encouraging others to challenge the norms and to think critically and to put those ideas into practice in realistic and achievable ways and to bring to the public the academic ideas without the condescension and jargon. I discovered Elise via Instagram and I really resonate with her thoughts and her opinions and also the ways that she shares these. And I really hope you enjoy hearing from her today and I encourage you to check her out on her Instagram, her YouTube and her website. The music used on today's podcast is from Alemjo, which is my new age ambient music trio comprised of myself, my sister Emma Anderson and her husband John. Thanks so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoy today's chat. Thanks so much for coming on, Elise. It's a real pleasure to meet you and to welcome you today. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. Your Instagram, I'm sure you you might be on other platforms, but I've come across you on Instagram. Um, Yeah. What you're doing is awesome. And I just had to have you on the show. We're not going to spin it that you're an artist of any kind. You're definitely a creator because you do create Uh to get your point across. But I just wanted to have you on because you're one of those people I really resonate with. I really love what you're sharing and the way you share it too. It's very concise and straightforward. Um, so without me blabbing on, can you tell us what your sort of, let's call it pedagogy in childcare, your, your yeah, theory? Yeah, sure, like your, whatever, your, what I'm where trying you come to do. From. Yeah, 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 that's it. Definitely. Yeah, so basically um, my background is in childcare. I worked with kids for quite a long time. Um, I studied it a little bit and then I worked as a nanny for a long time. And that was at the same time as studying for a lot of years. Uh, I was studying philosophy. Um, so I did my um, undergrad degree. That took me a long time. Then I did my honours that we have in Australia. And then I did my master's overseas. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so I was really interested in 
academia. But as I went on, I really came to become more interested in what I like to call public philosophy. So basically bringing philosophical ideas to the public. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was really important to do that in a way that's digestible, in a way that people can understand, because often it seems like philosophy is something that's really removed from society and people will purposely or not be talking about things in a way that's really hard for people to understand. I think that it doesn't need to be that way. And I really wanted to try and communicate things um, to people in a way that makes sense, because why do we have all these big ideas, these ideas about society, if we can't communicate them Mm. Um, as well as that, when I worked with kids and then when I became a mother, I really got focused on this idea of, um, how we can communicate these ideas to children and to parents because I think the children have these amazing minds where they're so, so open-minded. They don't have these constructs in their minds yet like we come to have um, which are societally given to us and which we are given through um, certain binary ideas through the schooling system and just through the progression of, I guess, how our how our minds grow. So... Yeah, that came to be really interesting to me. As well as that, obviously, um, the as well as that, uh, political philosophy and ethics is really important to me. And obviously, so many um, problems with the capitalist system, with patriarchy, and things like that affect parents, particularly mothers. And so, all of that, I kind of try and bring together um, in this way that I can yeah, I can share with people on social media. Mm. What sort of got you first, and it's interesting, I didn't realise you were in childcare before. That's my, I was in childcare for nine years. Um, And now now I'm in the um, kindy system. So I'm sort of switched into sort of the. That's so interesting. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, But what got you interested in philosophy? Do you remember sort of what was the Yeah, yeah, I do, I do. Um, So, yeah, the childcare thing, I mean, to be honest, that was a way for me because I always loved kids. That was a way for me to work while studying because, um, I mean, to be honest, I just didn't want to do retail or something like that for years. I loved working with kids and I thought, why not do that at the same time? And it's such meaningful work. It's really difficult work, but it's so meaningful and impactful. Um. With the philosophy, so I grew up in a working class background and I didn't even know philosophy existed um, until I went to uni. I was the first one to go to uni in my family. Um, I'm the oldest of my siblings. My sister also ended up going. But, yeah, I discovered it. Before that, I was really interested in literature and writing. Mm -hmm. And they're really linked, I think, because they're both to do with ideas. So, yeah, I took that first philosophy class in first year and I kind of had my mind blown I thought, wow, you can talk about all these ideas and think about things. Um, And then it took me a few years to sort of realise, yeah, this is something I'm really interested in and want to do. But it is quite a, it's quite a tough area to be in, in the the sense that, um, I mean, you probably know with the neoliberalisation of education, all levels of education, higher education, really the number of positions in uh, humanities departments is very, very low. Mm. And like the grind for academics is really, really hard. And so, yeah, so actually um, I'm completely obsessed with it, but I'm still wondering am I going to go on and do my PhD 
Mm-hmm. I think I have this part in me, you know, this academic part of me that uh, really wants that because yeah. that's like, you know, like to have that recognition um, from academia that I was trying so hard in. Um, on the other hand, after I had my daughter, I really, you know, I thought I don't want that life. I don't want the life where I'm just grinding away, barely seeing my daughter and if, if we have more kids, um, having to move everywhere just for these jobs where you barely get paid anything, you don't have job security. So, yeah, um, I think that I kind of had to work through my ideas of what it means to do philosophy and, and uh, yeah, and uh, I think this idea of public philosophy is kind of a way to solve that. Mm. I like that. It's like, yeah, you're not completely consumed by that ac- academia world where, I don't know, it's almost like the outside world doesn't exist. You, you, you go to school, you go to high school, you go to, yeah. then you go to uni and you stay in this system forever and ever. Yeah. But you've come and out look, of I'm, it. <laughs> yeah, like honestly, I had a few years out of it anyway uh, mm-hmm. because I, um, I went, I went straight, straight from school to uni and then I kind of had, um, I realised, because I initially thought I wanted to do journalism then I kind of dropped out I had a few years and then I went back um and I kind of did it a slow way just because I had to work and things like this as well you know like um and then yeah I but what I've observed and experienced with people there is that this there's a really insular quality to academia um I don't know about other departments but particularly in philosophy maybe because it's to do with ideas it can become really abstract and sometimes the things you hear are just not related to people's real lives you know like there will be people should do this or people should behave this way it's just not recognizing the real nature of life the the real struggles people go through, you know, like, Mm. um, of course there is a elitist quality to university and, uh, there are still a lot of privileged people there. Mostly of course, white men, especially Mm. philosophy has mostly white men. And I mean, I'm a white woman, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a black or brown woman. I'm, I live in a smaller body. So I also don't experience, I, I'm, uh, able-bodied so you know even having said all of that I feel like I experienced a lot of um I don't know whether I would call I wouldn't call it discrimination but just little Mm. microaggressions and things like that you know you Mm. feel you feel Mm. that you're not the the main type of person there so yeah so that's another one of the reasons why I think I I maybe don't suit that Yeah, and like you said before, there can be this sort of particular way of speaking, like you said, whether it's deliberate or not. It's almost like a condescending way that, like, I know this stuff and you don't know this, so I'm going to say it heaps, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I really, really dislike this. And I I admit that I drank the Kool-Aid as an undergrad because I think because when you're learning it and you're thinking, wow, this is so exciting, I Mm. need to be be that person that I admire who who can talk in these ways using all these um, neologisms, all, the, all these new words that have been made up. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, sometimes for sure they can be helpful for the theory, but if you've made up a term, you can also then explain what that term means. And uh, 
yeah, I just think um, I guess that some pe- some people are, you know, really made for theorizing and some people are made for teaching. And I, f- I feel like maybe teaching's my more my thing. Mm. You've got a very and- sort of down-to-earth approach with it. Like you can see that it's an important thing and we've all got to, you know, challenge this the norms and this critical thinking is really important, but then you actually have to be able to put it into practice in a, in your life in a realistic way. You can't just be barking theories and ideas at people, <laughs> you know. Well, to be honest, yeah, yeah. I mean, some people do do that and it frustrates me a lot. This is one gripe I have. Of course, it's not everyone. There are some fantastic people there and, uh, you know, some just amazing people that are so down to earth and that really are fantastic teachers and are able to communicate things in a really clear way. But there are also a lot of people that just aren't interested in doing that, to be honest. They're not interested in uh, the real world, in the the (laughs) non-philosophy. Yeah, exactly. Well, to be honest, the older ones, you know, the, the older ones, they've never been in the real world. The things you hear yeah. from people, you know, these older men who their father was in academia, then they were in academia, and they literally maybe have never caught public transport or yeah. they've never, yeah. you know, they've never done a job. They've never had to, you know, serve someone at a takeaway place, a Macca's or something, or they've never had to, you know, get yeah. yelled at by a boss in a retail or you know just those everyday things that are part of life for most people and so then mm. to then theorize what a good life is or what we need to fix in the world is yeah. just it's laughable isn't it <laughs> yeah oh dear I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned neoliberalism and that's something that you do talk about a lot on your Instagram. Can you explain to people who might not not be familiar with that term what it's about? Of course, yeah. So I think it's important first to talk about uh, what liberalism is and then neoliberalism came after. So liberalism um, generally came from the Enlightenment. So this was a movement in France, in Germany, in the UK uh, in the 17th century that focused on the liberation of people from a kind of, um, I guess, cloud of closed thinking. Now, the idea was that um, we should be free to govern our own lives. So uh, thinkers like Immanuel Kant, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who some people might have heard of, they had these ideas that people should be able to govern their own lives. Um, They should be able to choose what they do insofar as it doesn't hurt or as long as it doesn't hurt other people. And importantly, they should be free to think uh, in a free way, not restrained by outside ideas. Importantly at this time, their context was a religious society. So mm. it's important to mention they were still religious men. And yeah. this is the interesting thing, uh, perhaps because of the times. But they um, they believed that these rules shouldn't govern all of society. So that was super important mm-hmm. to be, so to have our thoughts led by reasoning, um, by thinking, does this make sense? 
instead of by doctrine from the church. So this was an enormous moment because really at the time, you know, people still couldn't read. So a lot of people still couldn't read, only the elite could read. So that means that if you were told something by a religious leader, that is the truth. Mm. You didn't come to truth by some sort of uh, scientific process or some process of reasoning. It was just what you were told. So this was a huge, huge moment. Um, then uh, we also have lib- we come to have liberalism as a political system. So this is a system in which um, in which people should be free to do what uh, sorry people should be free to do what they want or Sorry, I'll say it again. People should be free to do what they want insofar as it doesn't hurt other people. Mm-hmm. And people should have their rights protected to be free. Now, neoliberalism then is a political system that began in the 1980s. So in America, you had Ronald Reagan. In uh, the UK, you had Margaret Thatcher, mm-hmm. who um, people probably might have heard of these people's names because they're pretty important. Australia, I don't remember who we had. Um, so basically they were really pu- pushing for everything to be privatised. Mm. The idea of neoliberalisation is that um, anything that is owned by the government, any sort of welfare state, so a welfare state is like where the um, where the government will give people um, a pension, where they will give people disability payment, they'll give people payment if they are without a job, they will give, and all these other things like um, they will fund the schooling system, fund hospitals, even some things we don't even think about, like the postal service, ambulances, everything that is public. The neoliberal process um, made all of these things private. So that means that uh, companies, some, some rich person bought it and then that is now owned by a private person, that means that there's no longer this sort of idea that it's a public good or it's something that everyone should be able to use just because they live in this society. Mm. Rather, it will be something that you have to pay for and that will be based on whatever the company decides. Mm. So this process was a really ideological one and it meant that so many things were privatised to varying extents. So we see in the... um, we see in the UK and particularly in America that so, so many things have been privatised that society comes to disintegrate. So in Australia as well we had it, um, but America is really kind of the hallmark of this because in America even things like the postal service has started to be privatised. We see that the schooling system has just been absolutely gutted and, you know, teachers even have to pay for their own resources and things like this sometimes. Mm. The other important thing that I do talk about a lot, um, I hope I'm not explaining in too much detail. No, this is great. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So the other thing that's really central to this that I love talking about is the idea of the neoliberal individual. So going back to the Enlightenment, the idea of individualism, is really um, invented, at least in Western thought. Mm -hmm. So like I said before, uh, Enlightenment thinking and liberalism was based on this idea that we should be able to be free as individuals. So then we start to have this idea of an individual. I, I think that now we probably don't even think about it because, you know, we just think we're all people, we're all separated. 
But this is actually a really cultural thing and a really, uh, really within our historical context. Some societies today don't have this idea, you know, they're more collective societies. They don't think always I, I, I. Mm. Um, so this was brought to light through this uh, enlightenment process. And this kind of shows how these ideas do affect real life because, um, first of all, these thinkers came up with them. Then they come to be um, proliferated or or they reach the world through governments and through leaders, through schooling, and eventually it becomes common sense thinking mm. that we are just all these individuals who are separated from one another. And the most important thing is that I get to choose what I do and I am in competition with you. Mm. In neoliberalism, this becomes even harsher. So... <laughs> Like uh, like I said before, under neoliberalism, there's really this idea that um, the government should not infringe upon our rights because if the government is doing anything to, um, if, if the government is telling us anything to do, then that is immediately an infringement upon our rights. Every, everything um, is rather just seen as a... Uh, intervening on an individual who who really needs to be deciding 100% mm. for themselves all the time what they should do. Yeah. I think it's I think it's also a huge <laughs> Yeah, it's also a huge mistake because of course we are still living in a society and we do everyone has roads, right? Mm. They're still a social good. <laughs> They're still a social thing. We we mm. still always have stuff uh that is part of society that actually taxes and the government has given us. Um so I think it's kind of misunderstanding the world but yeah this is so important to me because I just think that this really impacts every everything we do really every part of our lives mm. it seems to me sorry that's not a way to start a sentence that sounds like I'm going to say something really profound but I'm not no 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 I've, I've, I've never really learned about this in um like a study kind of way like I'm aware of things yeah. but I, but I've sort of find it so interesting that it seemed to start out as a good idea that you question things and you learn things, but then at some point it's just gone to the extreme kind of like, when did it become mm-hmm. a good idea not to support people in our society that need help? Like, yeah. you know, this, yeah. it just, uh, and that's, I think why like Thatcher has got such a poor reputation in a lot of cultures and yeah. in a lot of circles because she just, it was like, I don't know if you, I enjoyed watching her portrayal on The Crown, on that series. The Crown. Yeah, it was fantastic, right? Yeah. I, I really liked it I too, think yeah. If anyone wants to learn about her in an in a accessible way, that's a really good introduction to well, her. Yeah, I, I read that it's not, it's not all true, obviously, but I, yeah. also re, I also really enjoyed that because I think they, they did portray really well um, how yeah kind of her really special nature because she was Mm. a very special person I think an interesting political figure not one that I agree with or like yeah same but definitely an interesting person yeah Yeah. And, (laughs) and it was interesting to see the conflict between you know two women I'm taking this in a different direction now, but in the terms oh, of feminism, oh. um, yeah. something that I'm really all over and I love. Um, Me too. The other day, and it seems like the other day because it happened so quickly, but when um, yeah. when Liz Truss became Prime Minister in the UK yeah. and everyone was like, oh, it's a, it's a woman, we should all be so happy. And I felt like saying, mm-hmm. but were we all happy with 
you know, Thatcher, and she was, yeah. you know, this, this, I don't know, what the word, universal I, happiness yeah, that we're supposed really, to have think, just because it's a woman, you know. It's really a simplification, I think, and yeah, uh, yeah I yeah. completely agree with you. I, I'm exactly the same. It, I think just because it's a woman, it doesn't mean it's suddenly going to be fantastic. You know, we still have, and this is the importance of, I think, when we're feminists are being intersectional, which is, you know, this idea that we look at all these different ways uh, that people are disempowered, different power structures. So, yeah, she's Mm. a woman, but she's already within this power system, Mm. you know, So she and she already has these values. so, you know, she just because she's a woman doesn't mean that she's immediately going to stand up for women, stand up for black and brown women, stand up for trans women, you know, poor yeah. women. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, there was a lot of that. But that commentary. was a funny, that was yeah. a funny, funny few weeks in the UK. Oh, but... wasn't it? My gosh. I listened yeah. to a lot of um, BBC radio, like at night, mm-hmm. um, overnight I have it on. And gee whiz, even they were just... You know, for a country that everything's meant to be proper and seen to be right from the outside. Oh, they not were, anymore. I they think they're really struggling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah, gosh. I, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, my husband and I were talking about it a lot and we, uh, I don't know, I kind of have an idea that's like a bit of a falling empire. Like in the, in the past, you know, it was this world empire that really, obviously colonized everywhere you know an empire in a in a terrible sense usually empires are like that they do a lot of um colonizing and all these terrible things but yeah it was an empire and you know they thought the leader of uh progression and it's not that anymore and it's interesting uh yeah it's not in a very good situation So neoliberalism is bad, putting it in. Yeah, yeah. We don't like we neoliberalism. Yeah, we don't like it, yeah. What, what's the opposite to that? Is there a, uh-huh. is there a term that, yeah. yeah, tell me all about that. Um, look, I never, I never like to just prescribe and say, look, this is 100% what we should do. We always need to yeah. look at the individual conditions of a particular society. So every society is different. But in general, um. I argue that a social welfare system would be much better. Mm-hmm. So a system of government where there are these basic protections for everyone. Uh, so all these things we talked about, so, so, you know, childcare would be affordable, the minimum wage would be really high so that everyone can afford to live. Um, healthcare would be really accessible to everyone. There'll be a universal healthcare system. Um, there wouldn't schooling wouldn't have public and private schooling you would just have a schooling system that was accessible to everyone Mm -hmm. there would be less of a gap between rich and poor and at the level of this ideology or the idea of the individual there would be less of a sense that we all need to be completely separate from one another and more of a sense that we do live in a collective and that we are as human beings in our very nature we are collective beings and that we do flourish. We live better lives when we're more connected to one another. So there would also be these grassroots and uh, bigger level 
structures that really facilitate us always connecting with people. Mm. Um, I think that then people would also be flourishing, they'd be leading better lives, but they would also hopefully be less lonely, less isolated. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, this sort of it's a, such a Western thing, isn't it? That we've all got to be individual, yeah. and we've lost this sense of you know, um, it takes a village. You know that that still rings exactly. true in so many countries. Look, it literally does take a village because you've got everyone yeah. around you. Look, even in uh, e- even my husband's culture, he's not Australian. Um, I just see how people behave and. Uh, it, it's so different, you know, like in Australia we kind of have this idea that we'll all help each other mm-hmm. and it's kind of true but when I see it in these more collective cultures, it's just a totally different thing. Like you don't even, I don't know, you, do, you don't, people don't even think about it. It's just part of life, you know, mm-hmm. that you, everyone's always helping one another. You, you never really feel alone. Sometimes it's the opposite, you know, you feel <laughs> You feel smothered by people, but I don't know, even things like, look, I think, I think when it comes to being a mother, um, which is obviously something that both you and I are really interested in being a mother, you know, mothers are so isolated in Australia, America, Canada, these uh, so-called Western countries, because we've been told we have to do it all alone. It doesn't make any sense. Even, uh, you know, we have that, these ideas that grandparents, uh, you know, they shouldn't be around the family all the time. And I'm not I'm not saying that they have to. They have to be some slave to their grandchild or something. You know, everyone yeah. has their individual circumstances. But, but, you know, that other cultures do have a different idea of family where where you're just always together and you're you're coming popping in and out. It's not this scheduled thing where, you know, you're like, okay, well, grandma will look after you on sa- at Saturday from two till four and then. I don't know. It's more just like a, a more of a flow. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think we've kind of gone wrong in that way. It's really it's really a sad thing. Mm. Yeah, I can relate But, but that, I mean, yeah. people are becoming more aware and I think it's something we can change, you know. You know, if we, if we recognise a problem, I think we can start to change it. Mm, absolutely. And that's what I love about this. Like, you know, so many people on social media and through podcasts and all sorts of things are, are saying how they feel about things and questioning, you know, just because we've always done this a certain way, why do we have to keep doing it this way? Is yeah, it actually exactly. who's and the serving other, the these really days, important, you know? The really important thing is we haven't always done it this way and this is something that is, <laughs> is really, really um, what happens with ideology, you know, an idea becomes the main idea about something and then the best, the way it works the best is that everyone thinks, well, we've always done this. You know, I've heard people say, like with capitalism, a, a woman, an older woman um, said to me, we've always done it this way. University has always been, uh, you know, really expensive. And I said to her, in your life, it was free, <laughs> like in your own yes. life, not not only. So, so it's ama- amazing in the cultural imagination how we can forget Yes, that is very true. That is a good point. Yeah. And it's almost like whatever idea is at the forefront of the time, they that that idea wants us to forget everything else. <laughs> so yeah, we, we're works, sort of brainwashed well, into yeah. going, this no, exactly. is all we've ever done. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that's uh, why that's I'm so obsessed with uh, critical thinking because, you know, this idea of thinking about things and picking apart why something is the way it is, mm. uh, particularly, yeah, for kids, because I think that 
you know, if they grow up always picking things apart, I hope that then they'll be a little bit less, well, like you said, brainwasher, a little bit less accepting of everything. Yeah, absolutely. No, I love that. Talk about this idea of introducing children to these, to the to the notion of critical thinking and to yeah. social. What did you, you had something really good on your Instagram? Uh, social justice. Yeah. Oh, social justice concepts. Yeah, I said that yeah. you should introduce them from the very beginning, rather yeah. than sort of when they're old enough to what we think old enough to understand them. Yeah, yeah I guess my a big thing for me is that we can really break this down into ways that kids can understand we don't because uh yeah I've worked with kids a lot I have my own kid um and I think it's really fun to think about for me as a challenge think about how we can break them down into things that kids will understand so you really got to bring them to their level Mm -hmm. so yeah if we're going to talk about social justice concepts with little kids say toddlers we've got to think what are we really talking about with social justice? You know, we're talking about inequalities in the world and the way that some people are um, prejudiced against other people. Some people don't get as good a life as other people. We're really talking about what's fair, aren't we? Mm. That's the basis. And, you know, actually we talk all the time to kids about what's fair mm. anyway because yes. we're really teach- we're teaching them this. They don't sort of come out and have an idea. We Any way we have to teach them. So why not then bring it up already, you know, um, in ways, you know, when I've talked to people, um, for example, um, on uh, my Instagram, I've uh, collaborated a bit with this uh, wonderful woman, Kanisha, and she does work on Mm anti-racism. And uh, she says that you... You, sh- you need to actually name the things that you like pretending, not saying black, not saying that kid is black. Mm-hmm. That's not going to help anyone. It, it, they are black and their differences. We need to point them out and point out how they're beautiful mm. and point out how they're great and interesting. So, you know, from the very beginning, when we're reading um, books with kids, make sure that they're diverse books and say, look, uh, you know, that mommy has white skin, that daddy has black skin, um, that mommy has red hair that daddy has brown hair. It's all, you know, everyone's different and that's what's special about us and that's what's beautiful. Mm. And then you can point out instances, you know, in the playground of like um, people being, I don't know, maybe, you know, that kid was being mean to that other kid because they're smaller than them. That's not nice because um, just because they're bigger than them, that doesn't mean that um, they should be allowed to push that other person around. And there you're talking about power structures. Mm, yep. So it's not, yeah, I, I think I'm not being naive when I say that all these things are connected. I think that you're, you're, mm. you're setting them up to think about these things. And I, I just think that uh, children are so, so capable of thinking, you know, the questions they come up with are just the most amazing questions. Mm-hmm. So we should just really kind of feed into that. Yeah, and, and you're right, like kids, they don't come out like we were the same when, you know, we were little the world has formed us into who we are by, you know, the concepts in the world about racism and, um, you know, all those sort of negative 
judgment of other people. Yeah. And yeah. if we can sort of be aware of that and I don't know, not do that to our kids, like you know. Yeah, look, exactly. <laughs> I think it's it really always going to be a process, but yeah, like yeah, being look, conscious think, of it. Yeah. I think we can never be, you know, part of human nature is to group ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is something we do, you know, so I think there's always going to be, it's always going to be a process of learning and unlearning and it's never going to be a thing where I'm like, now I don't, uh, now I'm not prejudiced against anyone. I like to kind of, for myself, I mean, take it that I'm always racist. You know, I have internally, not on purpose, but I'm always going to have inside me or I'm always, I always have misogynistic ideas. So mm-hmm. I, I always have ideas that about men and women that are, based on uh, their gender that I've learned because these are internal. We're always going to kind of have them to a certain extent. And as much as we try for our kids, they will have different prejudices or the same ones that continue. So it's also teaching them to constantly question those as well. And to say, it's not that, not to feel guilty, not to say that I'm a bad person because of this, that doesn't help anyone, but just to say, look, I'm not perfect. No one is perfect, but we're trying to build a better world. Mm. And let's kind of all be vulnerable in saying that none of us, uh, you know, none of us have pure thoughts or something like this, you know, yeah. but we're all. We're trying to do I mean, our but, best. <laughs> yeah, we do, we're all doing our best. Exactly. Yeah. We're all doing our best. Be realistic and, and just try our best. Yeah. I think that children are capable of, uh, you know, of taking on the complexity of the world and, you know, like, yeah, you're not going to say, you're not going to make your kids obsess about it or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're not going to be like, but also we, um, you know, and this is something that all, it's hard for all of us. It's hard for me. Children are people and they're, you know, they have all different emotions like everyone. They can't be happy all the time. Mm. And, uh, you know, so it's not a bad thing that they feel sad. Mm. And I think when, when we grew up uh, often, there was this idea that you just shouldn't point these things out. You shouldn't talk about it. Yeah. At least where oh, I grew absolutely. up. And uh, yeah. And yeah, but you did see it, right? So as a kid, you're kind of confused because you're like, why is no one talking about this stuff? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you think it's a bad thing to even address or talk about. I kind of feel like we're living in a different context now because we live in a much more global society and, you know, we have access and our kids have access to people from all over the world via mm-hmm the internet and and I kind of think that they might grow up having a more global sense and having said that yeah I think um the only way things really change in the end is kind of at a smaller level so Mm, that's it isn't it yeah Um, but I mean yeah I was going to relate it to we decided it was a good idea not to use plastic straws and on the ad it was like you know it's just one straw said, you know, 13 million people, you know, so it's like every single person yeah. can do something and, yeah. you know, it does start with little actions and I don't think exactly but the value of those. You know. Exactly. I'm always kind of though arguing that the mo- that it needs to be, we need to as individuals um, push for structural change. We need to mm-hmm. stop, you know, governments and, big companies from doing the things that they are because often with this uh, with our society being so focused on individuals they the dialogue on purpose is pushed towards these individual changes so yeah mm. 
the straws are important, but as long as these big oil companies are still <laughs> mining uh, and still, you know, as long as uh, governments are still in Australia, you know, the government is heavily, heavily um, in bed with the big mining companies. As long as this is the case, then if we recycle, it's only going to do so much. So it's got to be both. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, for sure. You're listening to The Art of Being a Mum with my mum, Alison Newman. I want to read out one of the quotes that you have on your Instagram. Okay. I completely (laughs) relate to and I love it so much. I want to frame it and put it on my wall. A mother's identity and sense of self is tied to the, and then in brackets, lack of, social recognition she receives for her labour. Now that Mm -hmm. basically in a nutshell is how I felt after I had my child my identity went down the drain because all I was expected to do was look after a child and I kept thinking I'm so capable I've worked full-time I've done all this that and the other but now all society wants me to do is sit on the floor and play with this baby and it just felt so weird and I was challenged very much (laughs) so yes I love that statement (laughs) that's um yeah I I think so many of us go through this and you know, on the one hand, it, it is, uh, there are two sides to it. On the one hand, you have that um, for some for some women, this is so monotonous and this is just, you know, women are told that they need to absolutely love being a mother every single moment. And this is a, this is a patriarchal idea because it's based on the idea that women are just naturally made to be nurturers. Mm. This is your God-given role. And some women simply don't feel that and that's totally okay. And, you know, one person isn't meant to completely bring up a child. On the other hand, I think that uh, capitalism really puts this emphasis on our job and our identity is totally tied to our job. And I talk about that a little bit in the in the Instagram post. Um, so our identity is so tied to our job that when we go on maternity leave, there's this complete identity crisis. You know, it's an existential crisis. That just means... A crisis related to um, our understanding of um, the meaning of life, existentialism, mm-hmm. yeah, meaning of life. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, our whole idea is what does my life actually mean? I'm not doing anything. And that's because doing is always within capitalism producing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also I'm not earning a wage for this and so therefore this is meaningless um, when actually what you are doing is you're contributing to society by bringing a human being into it. Mm. You know, you, this is a huge part of, I mean, this is one of the biggest ways that you are contributing to society. Like babies fundamentally cannot look after themselves. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, yeah. So I think that we're kind of Women and mothers are really put in this uh, catch-22 situation. You can't win either way, right? If you mm-hmm. stay home, you want to be a stay-at-home mum. No, you're not um, doing anything meaningful. You're not producing. And then you're, and you're, you know, even some people will say, oh, you're a bad feminist, which is completely not true because uh, feminism should be about women choosing what they do with their lives. 
as long as they're not harming anyone else. And then on the other hand, you have, uh, if you want to go back to work, you're abandoning your child. Your your role as a woman is to (laughs) look after your child. So, yeah, women really can't win in this. It literally cannot win. Um, I'm just looking for this quote. Um, I had a guest last, was it last year or this year? I can't remember now. Um, Charlotte Condy, who's an an artist from the US, and she had mm-hmm. this quote that I love, and I've, I'm finding it because I've got to say it right. I can't, uh-huh. I can't not say it right because it's awesome. Where is it? Hello, Charlotte, if you're listening. All right, here we go. This is it. So it says, as mothers, we're asked to raise human beings and also contribute to society, as if those two things were different. <laughs> it's like yeah, literally fantastic. exactly put so well that's put so yeah, well you I just know? love it yeah, because because society somehow under capitalism has become the economic world yeah it ha- it it has become just that and not all these other aspects of society um yeah and you know sometimes the word care economy is used to talk about how this is a you know is also is an economy where we're producing but I think even we don't even need to use those terms it's just the fact that nurturing one another is one of the main human acts and the way that we you know part of being human and living a good life not to mention that we there's no way around it like either we either we look after our children at home or other people look after children in a child care center it is still this care right yeah um yeah people need that so yeah we it's really the fact that they consider different things is a real problem mm. and again i think that's yeah this i oh know i feel like i sometimes bash men too much but this whole it's not individual men it's the system no it's not it's the the system system. and it's been going for hundreds and hundreds of years it's not a new thing but there's um an interesting post I can't remember who wrote it just last night I was reading that the whole idea of being a natural mother nurturing that is a concept that was created by men by the patriarchy exactly absolutely yeah because that's yeah. how I felt that when I was first giving my baby his very first bath and yeah. I did not know what to do, I thought how, like I remember saying to the nurse, I was verbally, like how hard do I push with the face washer? Like all these yeah, things. Yeah, goes, of course you don't know. Just trust yeah. your instincts. I'm like, um, but just and that's tell me what to do, you know. Tell me like, yeah, you've got this <laughs> tiny, tiny little little alien looking thing. and yeah. That's the funny thing. Yeah, somehow when actually mums and dads, all parents, uh, just learning the same as one another, you know, like, where, yeah, when uh, when my daughter was born, my husband and I were both equally terrified of giving <laughs> her a bath because, you know, they're so, like, how do I hold them? What do I do? And yeah. it's like, yeah, so you're all learning that. together. <laughs> yeah, this, this is absolutely absurd, this idea. And you're right. It, it of course, does come from patriarchy because uh, there's this thing called gender essentialism. I, I'm sure you kind of uh know the idea at least maybe not the term so yeah, I was going to say not probably not in those words but I know term, what you mean but you yes. would know it for sure yeah so gender essentialism is basically just saying that certain qualities are inherently female and certain qualities are inherently male so the female ones would be nurturing soft emotional mm-hmm. um kind of uh soft and all these things and then the male ones would be hard uh reasoning uh, unemotional because of course anger isn't an emotion in this context oh, oh, oh. um 
and kind of separated from other people. Mm-hmm. And these ideas are, yeah, are really fundamental to the way that we think about people of different genders. And then, yeah, becoming a mother, you're just so pushed into this because I, I guess in the workforce, you know, you can kind of, uh, there are a lot of still a, a lot of limits on women, but you can kind of go into a field that you're interested in. But with mothering, you're really, really pushed into that. I am a nurturer. I have to be a nurturer. And yes. it's just, you know, like like with anything, some people take more to that and some people don't and that's totally okay. And also we're all learning, mums and dads, we all learn when none of us are just are just uh, born to be parents. Yeah, that's so true. And, like, even with my two kids, like, I've adjusted the way I've parented them because they're different people. So I'm learning yeah, as I go. That's the other thing. You yeah. Know, because not every child's the same. Everyone, like, every mm-hmm. person's different. So Exactly. It's an interesting concept, isn't it? I love all this critical. I love this stuff. Like, this just... Why why do we think like this? Yeah, you know? yeah. once oh, you start, once you start, so you get addicted to it. And yeah, yeah, that's why you sometimes oh. people are annoyed. My friends are annoyed at me because you know you can't have a normal conversation and you're like <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love that though. things that you've sort of delved into on your Mm -hmm. page um obviously politics but diet culture um, oh yeah it's a good one Mm -hmm. um can you share some of your interesting thoughts about that about oh yeah and I noticed earlier when you described yourself you said uh, I've got a smaller body you know I live in a smaller body yeah. yeah sorry you live in a smaller body um, yeah. I'm, not, I, I'm not an expert on this whatsoever um, with this, just like, you know, that I would never say that I am the person that everyone should be listening to about racism. I'm not the person that people should be fundamentally listening to about diet culture, but I do think that it's a really important uh, thing to talk about. But, mm-hmm. look, it's women that are um, people that are living in larger bodies um, that, are really um, the ones we should be listening to because they're the ones that experience um, that experience prejudice and uh, fat shaming and all these things. So I'm trying. I'm really in a process of learning as well. I think uh, because you know this idea that um, to be thin is good mm. and to be bigger is bad. This is something that's so deeply ingrained. You know that like somehow these are moral things, and also mm. somehow these are things that we can totally control. And and if you're not thin, you just need to try harder to be thin. Um, so yeah, so um, yeah, I like all of us. I grew up um just hearing from everyone around me, people constantly criticizing themselves about their body. You know, and especially women, not only women but especially women. It is such a collective thing we do. You know. Yeah. Um, and then of course, after you have a baby, it's the thing we do. And we just waste so much time focusing on our bodies, how much we, the things we want to change and what we mm. hate about our bodies and things like this. Um, but the reason why I think it's important to talk about it as a diet culture, like as an ideology we have in society is because what we learn from, um, 
fat people, the people that are living in larger bodies. So I purposely use the word fat because, mm. um, you know, when we grew up, we were taught you shouldn't use the word fat. It's like an insult to someone. Yeah. And there are some activists um, like Aubrey Gordon, who I don't know whether you know the podcast Maintenance Phase. It's one of my favourite podcasts. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, she, she kind of says this, this is a descriptive term. Um, I believe that different people kind of have different ideas like about this, but um, what I've learned is that, yeah, it's just a descriptive term. And as well as that, to say things like I'm living in a smaller body or someone is living in a larger body, we're saying that this is just the body we live in. We're not, we kind of haven't chosen this and we, um, you know, it's just based on genetics. It's based on, uh, you know, our stress levels. It's based on, what our social context is, you know, uh, how much money we have, the availability of food, um, how much time we have to prepare food or exercise, what sort of weather conditions we have, just so many things we mm. cannot control. We fundamentally cannot control it. And so I think it's so important to talk about how um, there is so much prejudice against people who are not thin, just mm. fundamentally, and this is quite a new thing that is being talked about now and there's so much pushback at, against it because we have so much obsession with thinness mm. and, you know, um, the things that people talk about that they, you know, the prejudice that they face, even just simple things like to get medical care. You would know mm-hmm. from listening to Maintenance Face, you know, the stuff that Aubrey Gordon talks about and how people, you know, as kids, they would be put on diets Mm -hmm. and everyone says that, well, that's okay because they just, you know, we just want them to be healthy and the psychological Mm -hmm. effects of that are just terrible. Um, So I think it's so important to talk about. So while, yeah, you know, while I as a person, uh, of course, have gone through a process of, um, you know, learning to have more neutrality toward my body and things like this and I am really trying to teach my kid, um, to have a positive relationship with food so to not think this is good food this is bad food um often intuitive eating is a term that's called that's used around this Mm -hmm. I think really though the fundamental thing is um that we need to think about um these power structures and how fat people are just completely completely you know they really suffer from uh inequality in so many ways because of this prejudice um and uh someone pointed out to me correctly that you know on social media on instagram so many people talking about intuitive eating and talking about diet culture are people living in smaller bodies Mm. and often white women you know so so we you know i we can only say so much about this it's not really our authority i think we need to really have a lot more Mm. diverse people talking about this and you know to really listen to them yeah I think that's really true um similarly with like we're talking about before about how I sort of speak to my children about things with Mm -hmm. um, weight like I I'm a fat person I'm I'm not ashamed to say that because I am it's a truth it's like saying I'm I'm tall and I'm fat you know they're they're descriptive exactly this yeah this is the thing and I think also it's like about everyone's own relationship with themselves like whatever I guess whatever you choose to identify with yeah um, is is important yeah Yeah. but like I, I explained to my kids that you know I showed my my youngest son's never seen me in a thin body I was mm-hmm. I have at different times in my life my weight's fluctuated but mm-hmm. I showed him a picture the other day of when I was at my lightest and he couldn't believe it was me and I said 
I'm exactly the same person that I am yeah. as I was then. Like I'm actually a happier and more settled person now. Yeah. Than I was then. It doesn't change like, uh, you know, whether I'm good at something or bad at something, maybe, you know, yeah. athletics is different, but you know, I'm still. Yeah. But it's I not can... like a moral, a moral thing. Yes, it doesn't say anything it, about you as a person yeah, because yeah. also like, okay, I live in a smaller body, but I'm not good at athletic, you know, yeah. I'm a, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I'm not, my diet isn't the best, you know, that's the other thing that like no one ever is sort of looking at me eating pancakes or something and being like, Oh, you know, gee, you should pick a healthier option or something. I mean, of course, like my, maybe my grandma did because, you know, like that's uh, <laughs> for, for that generation and that yeah. was like, uh, you know, just so ingrained for them that they're always kind of policing and worrying maybe you will get bigger, maybe yeah. you will, you know, yeah. Yeah. like as it, but, but you know, no one, you know, for fat people that it's a public thing. They can't go in, you can't go in public without being harassed in this way and all these constant microaggressions. And yeah. Mm. So I just don't think it, it makes sense because yeah, no, people don't know what anyone's diet is. And also it's irrelevant, totally irrelevant to other people, what someone eats. I mean, yeah. I just think tying this moral thing as if it makes you a good or bad person is absolutely absurd. Like yeah. how has it got to do with anyone else? Mm. or whether you're a good person yeah because like I said it also depends on so many factors like (laughs) like also if you're you know if you're a tired parent if you don't have much money or so many things and even if you even if you do have the ability to eat healthier and choose not um I I, no the word healthy isn't very good to eat more whole foods or something um if you don't it's your own choice you know like just like people choose to (laughs) Do different jobs. People choose to have leisure time doing different things. Yeah. And it's funny though, like we talked before about this neoliberalism is all about the self, but we're so obsessed with everybody else. It's like our judgment of others is so big. Like, has it always been yeah. like that? Has have people always been so judgmental of each other? I think it has. Yeah. I I don't like this um, thing about, you know, like um, I'm a, I don't agree with the idea that, you know, society is worse than ever in that sense because uh you know also even when we talk about neoliberalism look there were periods where we had greater um social welfare and things like that but fundamentally looking back in history it was much worse you know mm-hmm. there, yeah. we were like uh, kings and serfs we were there was uh, just slaves yeah. and uh, slave owners you know um so that was fundamentally there are still slaves in the world mm-hmm. you know there yes. a lot so, yeah, we have to put it in context like that. And uh, when it comes to being, judging each other, yeah, I think that now we just, it's more public because we have these avenues. But look, when we, I mean, I don't really know what happened before writing was a thing, but, you know, you look at these old publications from a few hundred years ago, newspapers, and it's all gossip. There, yeah. it, it just does seem to be this human thing to gossip about each other and to compare and to judge yeah um yeah I mean we we kind of do do that yeah and but but the difference is with this um constant it's more constant now because we just can't I mean think about the amount of different opinions and messages we're reading a day or we're listening to a day it's just so much so I think that's why it can feel so overwhelming
Now I'm going to lead this into something that I talk to all my guests about is this uh-huh. concept of, of guilt or particularly mum guilt. Yeah. And the more that we talk about it, the more I believe that the whole culprit of it is this what society expects us to be as mothers. So we yeah, have these ideals sure. that we think we've got to do. So we put these on ourselves and when we don't meet them, then we feel bad about it. So it's an external construct. Yeah. It's a thing that's coming at us. And I feel like because of social media, it's just heightened the whole thing because we can see mm-hmm. so much more. You know, before we might yeah. have heard that such and such down the road was doing such and we go, oh, she shouldn't do that, blah, blah, blah. But she might not yeah. have known that. But now it's, yeah. you know, people can tell each other what they think of them all the time. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You're right. It's it's just constant. And also... um. It's a, it's really difficult because I think as well we seek out connection on social media and I think and I think that um you know for isolated mothers we do kind of want to see others that are in the position like us that are also mothers at home with their kids especially when they're little you know when you're on maternity leave or when you're in that really difficult phase mm. then you really want to think like and you and like you said before you're thinking what is my life all I'm doing is <laughs> yeah. keeping this baby alive yeah um. So on the one, yeah, and that is kind of maybe part of the reason why we do also we're so vulnerable and then and then we look to these images of other people and, and social media, you know, I think that there is just um, there are parts that are really positive and I kind of try and stay stick to them. There are parts that are really saying that, you know, we, we just need to be good enough parents and, uh, you know, we're all doing our best. And then there are parts that, you know, they'll have this really nicely curated feed where it just shows them doing this lovely activity um, with the kids and they're all wearing matching outfits, their hair is washed and they're like <laughs> everything, there's no mess, there's no crumbs on the ground, there's no like. And you know, that's you know, not real. <laughs> it's not real. It's not real. But on the other hand, like when you're in this vulnerable mental position, mm-hmm. you kind of can think how, how can they live that way and how come I don't? Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, yeah, like, for me personally, I don't know, I I think in those uh, early days of being a mum, like in the newborn phase, I never never thought that, um, you know, that that was real or I never thought I wanted to be like that. But at the same time, I I definitely did and I still do experience mum guilt just thinking because we have these, um, we're socially conditioned, like you said, to have certain ideas about what a mum should do. We have... I think that this is ideal of a mother that it's not even, it's not a person. It's like this thought, you know, that, that we all have in our cultural uh, thinking and we compare everything according to that. And it's this idea that's been um, perpetuated by patriarchy. So not by men, but by this idea that women are a certain way and that women are meant to do this. And women play a big part in uh, perpetuating it as well. You know, uh, women, also perpetuate patriarchy we all we all do it because this is our ingrained thinking um and yeah so I I would think you know I think I would compare a bit more with like other mothers I saw around you know like Mm -hmm. why does she look so well dressed and I'm (laughs) wearing trackies and haven't washed my hair and uh have stress pimples or whatever you know like or why do I feel yeah or I don't know when my daughter um started becoming an older baby 
Um, you know, my daughter's on the super energetic side. She's amazing. She, I mean, she's just full of life and yeah. ready to go all the time. And it's completely amazing. Like people always comment on it, but it, it's tiring. Yeah. Um, like, I mean, even, and so once she started, I don't know, I was so obsessed and in love with her and still am, but as a baby, I sort of said to my husband, like, do you think, um, what would you think if I took longer maternity leave? So I, I'm in a really lucky position that we sort of could choose how long I would stay home with her. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't get paid for any of that. Uh, and we're not like in a, um, insanely good financial position like we sort of said then during this time we won't save but of course having said that compared to most women in the world that's a hugely privileged position like for me for us to even say that um so yeah and he was like yeah of course but then uh, you can however long you want um you know maybe until two or whatever and then she got close to one and I was like starting to think oh my god I cannot handle these days of constant energy like because it would just be like if we were at home, she'd be running around and she would be kind of annoyed. And it makes sense because she's like pent up. She needs to get this energy out. There's not enough to do. We live in an apartment. There's not enough. um, You know, in Australia, houses are super common. In a lot of the world, people live in apartments and it's fine. Uh, But um, uh, yeah, and we would, I would take her to the park twice a day and it wasn't enough. And I I felt really guilty because I was like, like, I love my daughter. I should be loving this when actually it doesn't make sense. Like just because I love her, it doesn't mean I need to love every second of it. Um, Mm, Yeah. Yeah. So we ended up setting out a daycare and we're all, um, she she is thriving and I, and I'm a much better parent for that. Um, Sometimes Mm. I do still feel guilty. You know, my husband has to remind me and it's interesting that he reminds me um, he's, he's a very good, feminist you know he he understands why um he wouldn't say that because I think he always, he doesn't like to say you know like as a man he doesn't want to say that but I think he he is aware of all these things and sort of uh tries to think critically about it mm, yeah but anyway he says to me why you feel guilty you know she loves it she wants to be there um but I, but then I don't know just this I I guess it is just this cultural ideas of like, oh, but she should be with me, even though that doesn't make sense. If she was, mm. like, the other day she was homesick with me and we were both annoyed because <laughs> <laughs> it's just too much. You know, she wants to be there playing with all her friends and doing the million activities they do at daycare. Yeah. I can't provide her with, like, ten activities a day. Yeah. Yeah, look, what you're saying is so, so true and so relatable. It's that, that notion that, like you said, we love our children but we don't have to love every second of this mothering role that, that we're in, it's you know. And crazy expectation. Yeah. How can we love every moment? We don't love every moment of anything, but yeah. yet but it then keeps we're, coming back. We're, we're hauled over the coals if we say, if we, we publicly, you know, say, oh, gee, this was really yeah. hard today. Like, well, you wanted well, to Well, why have did you kids. become a parent? Yeah, yeah, yeah you like, shouldn't you know, have had. And if people whinge about their job, like they love their job, but geez, they had a hard yeah. day. Oh, well, you shouldn't whinge about your job. Yeah. You know, why is this reserved for us? Yeah. You know, it's uh, like, because come women on. Need to be, yeah, this is our natural role. That's oh. what we're supposed to love doing it. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. And I think that, yeah, like, like we really need this outlet to just say this is hard sometimes, just like everything. And uh, also fundamentally that like society doesn't really support mothers. Mm. And so because we don't have that village, because we don't have the, it makes it that much harder. Mm. 
That's so true. I don't know how any of us do it, to be honest. When you think about everything yeah, we've got I mean, going against us, it's like, yeah. Oh and I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. I feel like I'm, you know, in such a privileged position, and I'm really tired all the time. And like, so, you know, people do it's so much harder, you know. Mm. And I, I don't know. It's I'm just in awe, really. But they shouldn't have to. They shouldn't have to, uh, you know. Yeah, that's so true. It's frustrating, isn't it? Oh, now I want to ask you, there's a, a great um, reel that you made a few weeks ago. Yeah. You screamed, yeah. I'm really that bad. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a big thing for me because, uh, yeah, I actually wanted, I want to talk about this again because this is like this obsession, absolute obsession with our generation, I feel like, mm. or yeah. parents at the moment. And, yeah, look, if you look at it, if you look at it in a historical context, uh, like I say, I'll just kind of repeat what I said in the real because, I mean, it's true, that every generation has this crisis about some new technology that's going to destroy young people. Mm -hmm. In the time of the ancient Greek philosophers like Plato, so this is like about 2,000 years ago, they thought that... Um, writing was going to destroy everyone because the oral tradition was how we how they communicated and you know through uh, memorizing that was a huge thing because of course if you didn't memorize then how were you going to ever uh, remember anything and how would ideas ever be passed on so they're like oh well now we write it down now the kids aren't gonna remember anything how you know this is going to be a catastrophe yeah. and then of course uh, then the printing press we have books proliferated Mm -hmm. That was a crisis. And then, of course, the ones we know, which are like uh, radio. Radio was a disaster. <laughs> now, of course, it's funny because people think the radio is like a good alternative to screen time, right? Yeah. Because they're not watching. But they thought, no, people are just going to be listening all the time and then they're mm. just sitting there listening and they're not moving around. And then TV, of course, which still goes on. Yeah. And then uh, the internet, you know. So... I just think that, yes, there are these recommendations that we have, but when we obsess over them, we're just really not thinking in context because we're, we're not thinking about the fact that, like, the alternative, we think that the alternative to screen time is, like, this 100% uh, this quality time with a parent or with some other caregiver mm -hmm. where they're just flourishing and they're... You know, they're just absolutely taking everything in and learning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for like in the past, the alternative was probably working. For a lot of children in the world now, yeah. uh, the alternative is working mm -hmm. or either working in uh, paid labour or working at home, helping with the, uh, helping maintain the home. Or if it's not that, you know, it, it, won't necessarily be this quality one-on-one -on -one time all the time. And even mm. if we talk about, even if we don't talk about that, we just talk about our own context, mm -hmm. then it, I just don't think it's the worst thing in the whole world. They don't, kids don't need 100% quality time all the time. It's impossible. Mm. And you, know, you also got to have um, parents who are, 
kind of regulated and feeling okay. And, <laughs> and, and, I, and I really think it's part of this mum guilt. It feeds into this mum guilt thing again because realistically, how are you going to cook dinner with, you know, a few kids around you, especially if they're young? Yeah. Or how are you going to, you know, get all chores done or how are you? Or maybe you just need to relax. It doesn't even need to be that, you know, like maybe you just need a minute, Yeah. you know, without them doing this. And I think that often the people that do do no screen time ever, at least the ones I've heard of are in a really privileged position, you know. Mm -hmm. And so then for people who are juggling so many things to feel so bad that their kid's watching TV, I just think it it just, I don't know, it's just guilt for nothing. And also I just think that when we look back historically, like maybe we won't be like, oh, my God, look, they were staring at screens all the time maybe because that's just part of our world. Yeah. Like screens are part of our world. Yeah. And the truth is I think if you don't give your child a little bit of access to that technology, they're going to get left behind at school. Um, that's the other thing yeah because because actually they need to learn these skills and that's kind of the approach we're taking that we're going to try and uh as soon as we can um um I don't know what age they started at like four or five or I haven't looked into it yet but uh, try and do like kids coding for um yeah because I mean that's kind of gonna be uh really important (laughs) And, yeah, that's the future. That's the world now. And I don't know anything about coding. And so I'm kind of like in the dark already, you know. And and uh, so I just don't think that, yeah, that try, we're trying to protect our kids from things. I think rather we just need to think how we can nurture them to safely and, and in a nice way use mm. those things. It's, this is a really long bow to draw, but it's like <laughs> in the – at times when you'd say to teenagers don't have sex, it's like, well, they're going to have sex, so teach them how to use a condom. Yeah, like, you know? no, that's so right, so right. Exactly. You just say just don't use it and then mm. they're going to go on the internet themselves Yeah. Um, or watch shows. Well, yeah, anyway, they watch shows on the internet, go on social media, whatever, themselves, and they're going to have no understanding if you don't teach them, like yeah. how to tell if something is factually based, how to tell if something is um, safe, yeah. you know, or something that um, is comfortable for them, you know, or how to ask you if, if, if something uncomfortable on the internet happens to them to tell you and yeah, exactly. like this yeah. creepy person says something to me or something. Yeah. Instead they'll just hide it and, and then get in more unsafe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah, so I just yeah. think waiting until they're teenagers to yeah. talk about yeah, safety on the internet and to, to let them have access, I think it doesn't make sense. That's not to say that I'm going to let my kid sit there and do anything on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> of course yeah. not. But but you gotta you've got to give them uh, I think um begin with small levels of freedom and make it bigger yeah. and bigger in ways that they can um cope with. Yeah. And it's no different to like if you sent your kid out a little a little toddler out into a big kid's playground or you know put yeah, you wouldn't go, go play on there. The you're not gonna just, it, yeah. yeah you're not just gonna go yeah right over and go sit and drink your coffee and not watch you know it's yeah. it's a part of life and trying to do it in a safe way so your child's protected and and that's important that communication too like to be for them to yeah. be able to come to you and say hey this happened what do I do or how do I navigate this or you know it's so important that they keep talking to you <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm to- you, of course, would have so much more experience with this. For me, this is all theoretical and just thinking about it because I know it's so hard for parents to work, navigate this whole online thing. Yeah. Um, but like you said, we, ju- we just got to 
we've got to acknowledge this is the world. This is the mm. world they live in. They don't, you know, they don't remember a world before the internet. You know, we, uh, you and I remember when uh, it shows our age, but we remember, <laughs> you know, I had a time before the internet. I, and so I really think of it as something that happened. They don't think like that. They're just like, yeah, that's the world. Like when yeah. I, my toddler, she has a, she's on her tablet. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't think that it's some huge disaster that she knows how to like change the video or something, you know, she can press mm. it. And it's like, yeah, like, because that's just like, she's learning all these other skills in the world. Yeah. She's learning to do that. Yeah. I, and I of course, it's so true. much easier for her. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, the story I often re- reflect on is my, my seven-year-old. Um, we were talking once about how we used to have our phones on the wall. So remember oh, you, know, yeah, you yeah. have to pick up the phone. It only went a certain distance, like the cord was stuck to the yeah, wall. Yeah, the curly cord, yeah. Yeah, and he said, how did you play your games while it was stuck on the wall? And I'm like, what? He goes, "How?" because he's imagining I've got my phone stuck on the wall. Oh, so he's thinking, how did you play your games while they're on the wall? Oh, that's amazing. I love like, it so much. He does not know a world that didn't have this stuff in it and it got it blows my mind (laughs) yeah this is incredible like how different because especially because we live in a time when technology uh, progressed so rapidly and now it kind of seems like it's a little bit plateauing again like we haven't um you know they're trying to do like vr and things like that now but but you know within the last kind of 20 years it's just been massive we've um with the smartphones and with how fast the internet is and things oh, like yeah. this. But yeah, it, it's so funny. There's this really good channel on YouTube, which is something like teenagers try out old technology or something, oh, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. It's so funny how like they're trying to use a video player and they're trying to work out like how you would put it in. And the funniest thing is when the, you know, that cord comes out, you know, the, the tape or whatever oh, you yeah. call it, the, the real inside, it comes out and, Everyone of our generation just goes, oh, because then you have to fix it with the pen. <laughs> I love that. There's a post. It's like, what's the relationship? And they show a kiss. Oh, between a pen and a pen. And a pen. And it's like, only certain oh. people of a certain age will know what this yeah. means. And you just go, and oh, And that was Christ. like such a fundamental part of our life. And now, like, uh, yeah, yeah. They, they just have no idea what it is. And They'll it's okay, too. Challenge. Like, Yeah, it's, it's okay, too, because the... Yeah. Uh, you know, things change and we don't need to, like, be romantic about it. I think, yeah. you know, because, but, yeah, it is funny. It, it is quite incredible. But I, I think that they're going to be, you know, do amazing things with this technology. There's such capability. Yeah. yeah, oh, absolutely. And, again, I think if your kid's not aware of it or understands it or knows what even what it is, like, that is the future. They will they will get left behind. That's like, well, it's I'm the not, present. It's, it's like already. It is, it's literally, sorry, mm-hmm. yes, it is. It's the present. It's happening right now. And if you can't engage in that way, you are just not going to be involved in the conversation, which is yeah, not what we yeah. want our children. Yeah, anyway. exactly. What, what platforms are you on? I know you're on Instagram. Are you on like? On yeah. 
Yeah, so I'm on Instagram. I've just started a YouTube as well because I wanted to do longer videos mm -hmm. uh, because obviously all of these concepts, um, I think it's a, it's really fun and I really like it that I can communicate things to people in a really short way on Instagram. But I'm, um, yeah, I'm on YouTube. So I'm, uh, I'm yeah, so you can find me there. And uh, I'm on Twitter as well if you use Twitter. Um, and I'm just... Uh, I'm just developing my website. I hope that it will be out soon. And my kind of hope with this whole project is, um, and this is why I started this whole thing, is I wanted to move toward or incorporate doing uh, courses for parents and really for people in general, but focusing on parents like feminism for parents and different critical thinking for parents, things like that, mm -hmm. and provide different resources. Uh, so, yeah, I'm really working a lot on that at the moment. Yeah, excellent. I love that. Um, I'll put all the links in the show notes for people if they want to want to find you. I've just found that you on would YouTube. Be great. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm still learning. I'm still learning. Oh, it's good fun though. No, yeah, it's good fun. Look, thank you so much for sharing your ideas with the world and for communicating in a very non-condescending manner. It's really lovely. Uh, <laughs> look, honestly, I think if there's one thing, like we're all learning, and uh, I just. <laughs> I don't know. We're all learning and, and yeah, and the more we can all talk about things, the better, I think. But it's been so nice. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, no worries at all. Thank you. Thanks for your company today. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd love you to consider leaving us a review, following or subscribing to the podcast, or even sharing it with a friend you think might be interested. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, please get in touch with us via the link in the show notes. I'll catch you again next week for another chat with an artistic mum. Helen Thompson is a childcare educator and baby massage instructor, and she knows being a parent for the first time is challenging and changes your life in every way imaginable. Join Helen each week in the First Time Mums Chat podcast, where she'll help ease your transition into parenthood. Helen aims to offer supported, holistic approaches and insights for mums of babies aged mainly from four weeks to 10 months of age. Helen's goal is to assist you to become the most confident parent you can and smooth out the bumps along the way. Check out First Time Mums Chat at mybabymassage.net forward slash podcast. <laughs>